The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, this is the last night we'll be talking about the ninth of the paramis. We've been going through this really great list of beautiful qualities of the heart, metta, which is a word we use a lot because the word love sometimes is misused, overused, and so sometimes it's better to start over with a new word. But you could use love, you can use kindness, you can use benevolence or basic goodness. And this is a quality or you could say a potential quality of our heart. It's The potential is there. It needs to be seen. It needs to be brought, in a sense, to the surface. And the barriers, like the thought, I'm not good, right? those have to be removed. Because when real love, universal love, or love for its own sake, when it's strong in us, the characteristic is something like, Boy, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize there was so much good in me, right here. That's always the thing. It's a bit shocking. And the other interesting characteristic about metta, about love, in this spiritual sense, when we see it, on the one hand, it's really beautiful, but on the other hand, it doesn't seem personal. I mean, it doesn't seem like I'm doing the love. It seems like it's there, and it has, as I mentioned last week, this tendency to want to expand. That's what love does. It includes, it connects, it's it's willing to be close. And as I mentioned last week, and it, it's really nimble. Like it can meet when it's really strong. It doesn't have a problem figuring out how to be generous, how to be kind, how to be compassionate, how to be appreciative with whatever situation is arising or whatever person we're interacting with. It's really nimble in that way. In a sense, it has its own intelligence, which is also very liberating. That I don't have to figure out how to be a nice person to you or a good person to you. right? I just kind of, as a practice, you know, as an individual, all I have to do is keep having confidence that this potential for goodness, for benevolence, for kindness is there. So really the work is just not forgetting it and then appreciate how it does its thing as we move about our day. Just see how it manifests, how it expresses its goodness in all the different moments of our day. Ordinary moments when we see really difficult a lot of suffering, or when we see things that are confusing, when we see beautiful things, how does love, how does this goodness of the heart, and in a real technical sense, by love we mean that quality of the heart that's not afraid to connect, which interestingly, you know, means the abandonment of boundaries, or division, or any sense of separation. So that's why in the tradition we think of it as being boundless or immeasurable. In the sense of uh, when it's deeply understood or when the, the mind is deeply aware of it, there's nothing that can stop it. There's nothing that it can't connect with. This is from uh, something Ajahn Sumedho wrote. 
in his book, The Mind and the Way. And he's uh, something that people, you know, people have a reaction when you teach about love. Either they think it's this sort of sentimental hogwash, you know, that you're just sort of pretending that you love everybody, and it's a sort of superficial thing, and it's like people just want to knock you down. You know, it's like kind of probing and see if they can irritate you to sort of prove to they can prove to you that you're not as good as you think you are. You know, you're not as loving as you think you are, right? So that's sometimes what people's reaction is. Or the other reaction people have to these kinds of teachings is, I'll just become this huge doormat and everybody's going to take, I'll have all this sort of soft, gushy love and, you know, someone will come and ask for $300. <laughs> Gabe was telling a story earlier about his mother who's just so... Uh, such a generous nature, loving nature, and be, he goes visits because uh, his parents live close by. And uh, he said, uh, when he goes visits, when he's leaving, his mom always asks, "Is there anything you need?" <laughs> and sometimes he teases her. Well, yeah, three hundred dollars. <laughs> so it's just uh, that sense of. Um, uh, you know, is somebody going to take advantage of me if I really act, uh, activate, if I really uncover my love and generosity? You know, what's going to happen to me? What? It's like we need hatred and ill will and sort of disconnection, separation, in order to be safe in the world. And it's the most ironic thing because what do we get from, you know, creating boundaries or barriers or walls? What do we get? We get a lot of suffering. We get a lifetime of feeling alienated and disconnected, alone, you know? So this is what Ajahn Sumedho says about that uh, fear that you're going to get trampled upon. He says, well, if you're stupid, (laughs) then of course everyone is going to trample you down. If you think kindness is a sentimental niceness that you apply to every situation equally, then of course it's not going to work. Nobody can do that. And the more you try, the more foolish you are. And the more people won't have any respect for you because it's not genuine. But real metta is strong. It's an appropriate response to life. And that's a great definition, right? Because it's the appropriate way to connect in the moment that is arising for you how to show up, how to be authentic or real in the moment. And each moment that's showing up for you is different, so how you show up is going to look different. He goes on, It isn't a kind of bland niceness, but an alertness, a responsiveness to pain and pleasure and to other conditions that we must bear. The quality of metta is non-discriminative. It's because we discriminate and discern that we tend to dwell on what's wrong with everything and make problems about the injustices of ourselves and our others. Metta isn't pretending that everything's all right, but rather it's about not making problems, not compounding present pain or ugliness with the aversion that comes out of ignorance. This is really important. Let me just say that again. Metta isn't pretending that everything's all right, 
but rather it's about not making problems, not compounding present pain or ugliness with the aversion that comes out of ignorance. And that's what we do. When things are difficult, we forget about showing up and responding in an appropriate way, and instead we proliferate. This is uh, something one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, said in terms of pain. Because we, you know, both when we're sitting, we have physical pain, sometimes emotional pain, existential pain. And then, of course, just in life generally, we run into a lot of pain. And he said once in his teaching, we might experience a painful, we might experience a painful experience, but we don't need to add an immutable, horrible self-image to it. Right? That's the proliferation piece. That's the part that's not kind. It's unnecessary. It's we think that when something beautiful happens, that it's appropriate to stain it by getting greedy. Right? Or if we do something beautiful, we can stain it by wanting people to know how good we are. Or if something bad happens, we you know, we stain it, we ruin it. We could have a beautiful moment of compassion, right? We could do something humiliating or hurt somebody, hurt ourselves, and there could be that very poignant moment where we really let in what just happened, feel the pain of it, and meet it with a, a beautiful and authentic compassion. Well, you know, it isn't easy being a human being. And as a human being, I make terrible mistakes sometimes that hurt me, hurt others. And I really care about how miserable, how difficult it is. I care enough to be close. I care enough to not add any immutable, horrible self-image on top of the pain that's already here. Why would I do that? Why would I add self-hatred on top of the feeling that I already have right now? Why not add something like an unconditional compassion? You know, it isn't easy being a human being. It isn't easy, have you noticed, having a conditioned mind that has its own agenda? Did anybody in this room choose the conditioning of their personality? Or did anybody in this room choose all the circumstances of your life, how things unfold for you? No, they just things just happen lawfully. There are causes and conditions, but it's not like, we made this or chose this, but still we're responsible for the life, for the circumstances that show up. And our responsibility really comes down to this point. Are we going to add hatred, greed, disconnection, denial? Right? Are we going to add these habitual, habitually unskillful responses to what shows up in our life? Or are we going to keep adding something that's beautiful? And what's beautiful is all of these many expressions of love, whether it's a kind of appreciation or gratitude, a kind of equanimity, a great sort of spaciousness, a kind of friendliness, a great compassion. There are many patience, forgiveness. There are many different ways that love expresses itself. And can you imagine any moment of anybody's life, our life, anybody's life, 
where that person's response to that moment couldn't have added something beautiful to it. It doesn't matter what the moment is. You can add something beautiful to it. Right? Isn't that true? I mean, it's so moving when you see somebody in the midst of a really difficult moment and they don't add something horrible on top of it, but they add something beautiful to it. Right? We always say that. I mean, isn't I forget what the phrase is exactly, but you know that difficult times bring out the best and worst in people, and it's so true. And it's really to this point: like either, depending on how our mind is and whether it's been trained, we're either going to add something really not helpful and counterproductive in that moment, or we're going to add something that's quite enlivening and liberating, even in the difficult moments. I want to read a little bit more here. It's about not making problems, not compounding present pain or ugliness with the aversion that comes out of ignorance. It's the ability to be patient and accept the flow of life as it happens. So he's talking about metta, love. To carry negativity with you is one extreme, And the other is trying to pretend that everything is all right all the time. This pretense is a deluded state of mind. Real metta and real wisdom work together. When our responses to life are not coming out of ignorance, they may not necessarily be glad. They may be quite sharp and even wrathful, but they can still be filled with metta. This means that they're the appropriate response rather than reactions arising out of desire and fear. I remember, this is back in the 80s, and I <coughs> was teaching sixth grade, sixth graders, fifth and sixth graders, and, uh, and I remember, uh, and then later too at, at all kinds of different grades, but just in the course of teaching children for a number of years, I learned how to respond appropriately, like to have a wrathful voice, <laughs> just to kind of state it in a provocative way, because that was the appropriate way to take care of everybody. And wishing that people would behave was not helpful, you know, or nagging people. Sometimes, what is helpful in a very, you know, because sometimes you have to break through the noise or break through whatever habit energy is arising in that other person and to help them understand that if you continue to act in this way, there will be this natural consequence. Please be advised. (laughs) Right? And so... This is the thing, like if we have an idea of what love is, we're not going to do very well at this practice. But instead of having an idea of what it looks like for you to go home tonight and be loving towards your partner or to your cat or whoever you might live with or whoever you might talk with on the phone, instead of having a fixed idea, it may be much more useful to sustain the awareness of this goodness and to feel it as you move you know, to your car, through the traffic, so that 
you're living your life without forgetting that the heart is good. The heart is capable of being good, capable of living as if we can live in a way that takes care of everyone. Now, fortunately, we don't have to figure out what that looks like. How do we live caring about everybody? I mean, I'm not naive. It's not that I actually think we won't step on toes. Even if we're a vegan, eating is causing suffering somewhere. There's some worm or some bug or right, some kind of exploitation of labor involved with just being a human being, purchasing food, even if you're really careful about how you do that. So it won't be perfect, but what can move in the direction of perfection is the quality in the heart of not wanting to harm, of wishing well, not wanting to step on toes, wanting to add something beautiful in each moment, wanting to contribute, wanting to respond skillfully in each moment. That intention, the purity of that motivation or that intention, that can really develop. And it will really completely transform us. And by transforming our own mind and heart, through ripple effects, will change the world. I mean, the meanness of the world and all of the injustices that we see around us, whether it's you know, economic or racial injustice or around the way we relate to the earth and the devastation that comes from that relationship to the earth, all of that can be traced back to human beings that haven't been doing this practice. I mean, I don't say that in a... I don't think I'm overstating the fact that it's not having understood what this heart is capable of and not having having taken the time to develop it. And remember, developing it means first recognizing it and then practicing not forgetting it. Because the expansion and the creativity of love, that happens on its own. In fact, it gets messy if you try to do it, as I said earlier. So our job is to know it's there and to keep remembering it. And then the only other task is to appreciate it, like to appreciate how good it feels, how beautiful it is when the heart, the goodness of the heart, is apparent. So keep that in mind as you, tonight, tomorrow, and really let it stand out when you have the opposite idea that it's not good. And even with a lot of confidence, like you'd be willing to, you know, to have one of those debates where they have on public radio now, I don't know if you've seen those, where they get two or three people from two sides and they have this very structured debate. You know, sometimes we're so convinced we'd win that argument that I'm not good. I'm, I'm not capable of loving. I'm not capable of being friendly. I'm not capable of forgiving or being generous. And I have rights to my anger, you know. I have rights to my stinginess. I have, we have our rationalizations because it's a mean world or because someone did something to me or because nobody's taking care of me so I have to fight like a, you know, a beast, a hungry, scared beast in order to survive. So we have our reasons 
But the the real question, because it's all very pragmatic, is to ask, well, how's that working for us? You know, how's that stinginess, that anger, this sort of unwillingness to open our hearts to the suffering of others? I mean, this is really playing itself out a lot in our country, and politicians, of course, are tapping into it because when you know, a skillful but not necessarily wise politician realizes that, well, I can really uh, point, like when giving a talk, politician giving a talk, I can really point out the suffering that people in the audience are feeling, like like um, I'm not getting ahead. I can't pay my bills. You know, I'm just getting, you know, overweight and older and more in debt, and my kids don't want to talk to me, and right, and sort of like fanning the flames of hate and anger and irritation and impatience and kind of conspiratorial feelings that there's somebody bad out there doing this to me. Because the thing about anger is uh, you can't really have anger unless there's a bad person. You need to have somebody to point to. And then, and then when we're in that state and somebody else says something like, you know, there are a lot of people who are being affected by systemic injustice, you know, racial injustice, economic injustice, you know, so, you know discrimination based on patriarchy. And, uh, but if, you're, if, if you've been and other people have been fanning your the flames of irritation and it's not okay and nobody loves me and nobody's taking... It's like, do we have any space in our heart to see other people suffering, to kind of own our role in that? No, we just... We get... Actually, it makes us mad. You know, when other people have needs, express their needs, I mean, even our partner, let alone these sort of greater societal needs and... Uh, places of suffering, it just irritates us. Other people, it's like, I don't care about your suffering. I'm the one who's suffering here, you know. Nobody's listening to my suffering. So we're basically not good for anybody when we're in that place. And we get into this, really, you know, it can get in families, in societies, you know, cultures, it can get really ugly when for all kinds of reasons, we keep looking with, at what's not okay. Basically, looking with hate, looking with anger, looking with impatience, looking with irritation. And the more we do that, the better we get at it. And we get into a tighter and tighter place. And we're really unhappy. And we make everybody else around us really unhappy. And it's, and it's just like if you're around somebody who's naturally loving, it's easier to be naturally loving. If we're around people who are really caught in hate and fear, it's easier to get caught in hate and fear. So it's contagious. So cultivating love in this way is not just because it's going to make us feel better, you know, like a cultivating a nice, warm, cuddly teddy bear that's just ours and you know, it makes us get through life feeling better. 
No, it's really the most powerful thing we can do. And it's a, it's a real act. Initially, it's a real act of courage to sit down like we did tonight, but at home when you don't have anybody guiding you, to sit down because it's an act of faith to say, I know this heart is good. Right Now, at that point, it's really important that you have a few memories you can bring to mind <laughs> to prove your point. Because you can bet that evidence to the, the contrary evidence is going to also come to mind, like you know the argument you just had with your partner or the you know, argument you just had with someone on the highway. So it's nice to be able to bring a memory to mind, like, oh, you remember, like I've been mentioning recently, you know, our cat died recently, but I remember holding Sumi, our cat, near my chest and just sort of standing with her for a minute. Or I remember some moments, simple moments, where there was a natural circulation of friendliness. No, uh, nobody trying to get anything, just basic friendliness. I stopped at the co-op today and I had just a very simple, nothing special, but just a very nice interaction with the cashier. Now just two friendly people being friendly, you know, and taking care of each other for about 20 seconds, right, or however long it lasted. But I, I can still remember. I can bring it to mind and I, I remember that possibility. And uh, right after our, I was leading a retreat at Holy Spirit, a place that we use, uh, run by some wonderful Franciscan nuns out uh, about 70 miles away. We do four residential retreats out there a year. So I was leading the retreat this weekend. And right after the retreat, you know, just a very simple, short, less than a minute interaction with somebody and just the warmth of the smile and that. Like I can, that, and I can bring that to mind. And when I bring that to mind, this is the amazing thing about memories. When we bring a memory to mind, when we remember the memory, the actual quality that was there at that time when the memory was laid down is now here in this moment remembering that memory. right? And it's not fake. It's the same thing. The seed of then, what happened then, is there now. So then once it's there now, then we, can, we have something to pay attention to because that love, that basic friendliness is right there in the mind and heart, right here, right now. So now we have a meditation object. Okay, friendliness in the heart. I was talking to somebody, uh, one of the people on the retreat in a practice meeting, and this person mentioned that uh, she was really finding the loving-kindness practice really powerful for her. And she mentioned that uh, sometimes it feels like something's breaking or there's really sharp and interesting pains. And it's true. because So don't expect, you know, as you remember the love, that's the potential of love, and you hold, rest the awareness there, and you trust it. That's really the practice. It's like it's there, and I trust it. I trust its goodness. I trust its goodness enough to relax with it and to not forget it and to keep keeping it in mind, keeping it in view. And then as we settle more and more, 
you know, it's uh, if you hold your fist really, really tight for like five minutes, it will hurt when you start to open it up. And in different ways, our heart has been defended and tight and closed, you know, each of us in its in our own particular ways, for a long time. And now we're intentionally remembering that the heart, the love's nature is to expand, is to open, to include. And that means it's going to move and challenge any defense, any hardness, any closedness. And so it might be crunchy at times or it might hurt. But that's why this initial confidence is really important because you have to trust that. No, no, no. That, I actually felt that. That was real. I'm not making that up. I'm not being idealistic or sentimental. That heart in that moment, my heart in that moment, authentically loved, wished well, was generous, was patient, was forgiving, right? So, and then, so I know that as a potential, I know that that's there. And just to give this meditation a location, I'm going to feel it here. I'm going to remember it here. So we actually use our physical heart center, but you can use whatever works for you. And then, basically, whatever pragmatically supports this contemplation, do that. Like I mentioned in the set, you can imagine your heart smiling, or your face, your heart, your body, as if it has a very simple, serene smile. So subtle that maybe nobody would even notice it if people were looking at you, right? So it's just this, that sort of soft glow of a smile. Or whatever image, phrase, word works for you. You could even repeat the word metta or love or ease, as I suggested in the guided meditation. But not in a forceful way like you're kind of, come on now, get going. Uh, one of my teachers recently mentioned this, and I think I said this last week. It's the, the work is more about making sure the curtains are open, you know, the doors and windows are open, so that whatever glow there is, however faint, that there's nothing obstructing it, like it can radiate out. Because even a very faint light radiates out effortlessly in all directions. It just needs the obstacles to be removed. And the obstacles in this case are our doubts about the capacity of this heart to care, to love, to wish well, to appreciate, to forgive. Let me just read a couple more things. from This is from Ajahn Sushito, who's a well-known um, British Buddhist monk and teacher. comes to the States usually once a year to teach. First, he quotes the Buddha, um, two common quotes about love. So one is, again, this is from the Buddha. This is how you should train yourselves. The liberation of the mind through kindness will be cultivated, developed, followed, used for guidance, taken as a basis, grounded, steadied, consolidated, and thoroughly practiced. And then another time the Buddha said, just as a strong conch blower. Right? So some of you know, like in India, they blow, and those things are loud. I don't know if you've ever tried or heard. 
just as a strong conch blower can easily notify the four directions without any difficulty, in the same way when the liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart through kindness is thus developed, thus followed, the results of limited, unskillful actions don't remain and linger on there. And this is really a powerful thing to notice. And this is what I meant. I think I said this right at the end of the guided sit. When our mind gets established in this goodness, right, and we learn to rest there for periods of time, it it's very it is very much a liberation of the heart. So if you want to know what this, the trainings that we do here, what that leads to, when there's a very simple and pure kindness, love, forgiveness, appreciation, compassion, whatever the particular quality, but it's pure and you're really aware of it, so you're fully there with it, then that means the mind is completely free of what in Buddhism we call the defilements, you know, like greediness or ill will or distractedness, delusion. So that's what Nibbana, Nirvana means, right? When Buddha talks about awakening or enlightenment, it is the absence of greed, anger, and delusion. So we can get a real sense. So an awakened being like the Buddha is just someone who's always in that place, never deviates from that place. Greed, anger, delusion don't enter into the mind, into the heart. That's the very definition of someone who's fully awake. So that's why we practice. But it's fortunate that we can sense it. But we have to really not just cultivate, but then we have to notice how good it is. So this is part of this loving-kindness reflection. It's not just to cultivate it, to remember it, to bring it into view, but then to appreciate it, like to actually... So with a kind of wisdom, see, there's no ill will now in my mind. There's no stinginess. There's no fear. There's no greed. There's no part of the mind that needs the moment to be different. There's just the contentedness with this love, with this friendliness, this generosity. It just wants to be supportive to ourselves, to everybody indiscriminately, for no good reason. It's just in its nature. So we want to really notice the liberation that comes. Here's what Ajahn Sushito says about these two quotes, and then I'll open it up see what you have to say. He says, Kindness as Dharma practice is a skill of extending goodwill so that one's heart isn't taken over by ill will. Sound easy? Well, these quotes point to the thoroughness and the excellence of such cultivation. Thoroughly undertaken, it liberates the mind from the cramp and gloom of ill will, despondency, and cynicism. <laughs> I like that, the cramp and gloom of ill will. And the Buddha, in another very provocative sutta, says we should do this to such a degree that even if bandits, you know, bad folks, came this is kind of gross, and sawed off our limbs with a two-handed saw from the Buddha suttas, even then, if you were unable to maintain a heart of friendliness, 
you would not be following my teachings. So the idea with this reflection is to so thoroughly be able to remember and tune in to the heart's goodness that there is nothing that could arise in our experience that would cause the mind to forget it. Right? We would never forget the heart's capacity to care, to be generous. But remember, it doesn't mean you wouldn't run away if you, <laughs> before they got to your legs. <laughs> It just means that if somebody is going to saw off our limbs, hating them isn't helping, right? It's not helping. Imagine being somebody who cuts off people's limbs. That would not be a very happy person, right? If anybody is deserving of compassion and forgiveness, it would be somebody doing something like that because boy, would that be a miserable existence, whatever that might be like, right? So I'm sure, like I've mentioned before, we've learned a lot in our lives about love and what gets in the way of love, and it'd be nice to hear from some of you. So your comments and questions would be really nice for the group. It's always nice to hear your name, too. Yeah, Brian. Hi. (laughs) Um, I'm Brian. I uh, recently lost someone uh, very close to me, and um, so I've been dealing with grief a lot and, and uh, trying to find my balances. And you talked a little bit early on, which is kind of funny, um, but you were mentioning uh, with suffering and saying, what about me with suffering? And I was wondering, because I'm having some trouble here and there finding the balance between allowing people to help me and then feeling like, I'm being selfish by asking for too much help sometimes. So I wondered if you could talk about selfish suffering and grief and, and, and those balances. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of thinking that you're going to figure that out, it's more like paying attention. And uh, so when you find yourself holding back and not asking for help, then really pay attention to what that feels like and what the motivation might be. Like, is it fear that keeps you from asking for help? And then when you are asking for help, take a look at what the motivation is. Because the motivation will tell you whether you're being skillful or not, whether you're operating out of wholesomeness or operating out of a tight place. It's hard for somebody else to tell you, but you can find out by just getting really interested in it. Now, initially, you won't be able to know in the moment, but in hindsight, you know, a couple minutes later, and you go, okay, what just happened? Oh, yeah, that person was there. I felt the inclination to say something, but I didn't. So, and then you're basically deconstructing it in hindsight. And you go, oh, I was afraid. I was afraid to be real with my suffering, like that maybe I pushed that person away. I was afraid to be honest. You know, well, that doesn't feel very good. Yeah, because that's that's the moments when, when the fear or the panic takes over, and then you find yourself reaching out because you're afraid. Yeah. Rather than sometimes you try and sit with it, but sometimes it becomes too much, and you just need to reach out. Yeah, and isn't it true that when people are capable of being really real? 
it's a breath of fresh air, you know. We're always afraid that um, that our neediness or our pain is a weight on others. But remember that opening to our pain and being real about it is a gift, right? Because we're basically modeling what everybody has to do. What we all tend to do is feel like, I can't be real about my pain because you won't want to be around me or you won't respect it or whatever we might fear. So one of the things we really appreciate when we run into the person who's very real, you know, and they just don't care. They're just going to be real about what they're feeling and direct and honest. And it's not about being pushy. It's just about being real, like where you're at. So are we going to have a real relationship? Well, if we're going to have a real relationship, then you have to know. I have to be, there has to be some kind of transparency here. And part of it is, too, like knowing who is interested in that kind of relationship with you. And we can always ask, you know, what kind of relationship do we have here? Do we want to be real with each other? Because that's a real blessing, you know, if we find people who do or are willing. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, please, Curtis, and then behind you. Hi, I'm Curtis. Uh, yeah, I found this uh, very clarifying because loving kindness has always seemed to me just huge. Sort of like the Christian love your neighbor like yourself, so big that I can't, I can't grasp it. It's not, I don't know how to practice it. But the idea that you just brought up of non-proliferation or simply, I think some other teachers said that, as I remember, they were speaking about uh, loving kindness. She couldn't approach it until she thought about it as uh, just doing no harm or doing no more harm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that really, that really, that I can do. I can't love you like myself, but I can, I can not contribute to the problem. And that, uh, that's just very skillful, practical advice. Yeah. I, can really, I can work with that. And the other thing I can work with is understanding how distorting it is to me to uh, hold hatred or anger you know, in my heart, how, um, what, you know, uh, drinking poison, what's this phrase? Uh, mm-hmm. Being envious of someone is like drinking poison and hoping it will, you know, kill your neighbor or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Drinking rat poison and hoping it's going to kill the rat. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that, that idea of non, of, of, of uh, doing no harm, non proliferation is just very actionable. Yeah, and that makes it, that helps make it really real. Like if we just have the um, instruction in our mind, okay, I'm about to go into this meeting and it's not like I want to love everyone to death, but I'm not to add any ill will. Even the most subtle kind of impatience, that's my goal, not to add negativity to the dynamic of what's happening. How to go through traffic, those of you who are driving or riding your bikes, how to go through traffic on the way home 
without adding fear or ill will. I mean, that, that's doable like to, as a practice instruction. Yeah, thanks, Curtis. This woman over here. I don't know your name. Melissa. Hi. Uh, so one part of your presentation, your speech, you talked about love being boundless. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a cancer nurse, and I've been really working on my boundaries. And can you provide any insight in how to keep your heart open and expanded in a place where there is a lot of pain and to not at the same time become depleted? Because that's what I've been experiencing is if I'm open, um, that then I become very depleted at the end of the day. So. Yeah, so that's why it it's really needs to be felt uh, directly in, in terms of the experience of the body and mind uh, as a circulation or a circle even. So that, because that's the difference between sort of a more uh, ordinary quality of love where it's more of a business exchange, like as a nurse, a cancer nurse, um, it's your job to be caring to those people. And then you're out, you know, and you got to go refuel. But when we're actually in the experience of love, authentic love, it has that boundless quality. It doesn't run out. In fact, the more you have compassion, the more you have love, the more you appreciate, the more friendly, the more forgiving, the more patient, there's just always more. So when we're running out, then it's something else. And so... That's why you want to, what I would do is start somewhere that's not so charged and see if you can tap into kind of love and you'll know it when, it, when you somehow sense the boundlessness of it. So it might, you might have to start by like sitting in your backyard and noticing the birds and appreciating the chickadees and that they have black sunflower seeds and they seem to be doing pretty good and just appreciating and just really see how nothing is lost by appreciating the chickadees, wishing well for the chickadees. There's no draining whatsoever, right? And then you can expand. Like you could just start, you might, like in our yard, um, we might notice a squirrel that's a little lame, you know, maybe fell out of a tree. And sometimes they, like they even seem like they have some uh, brain problems from the concussion or whatever, and they can't quite move well. And so that just naturally plucks the compassion string. And then we can practice like uh, a very real, authentic compassion for the squirrel, but not feeling depleted. Like, can I really let my heart break? Like, there's really nothing I can do for that squirrel, yet I really care for that squirrel. I wish well for that squirrel, but I don't know what's going to happen. You know, maybe a cat will catch it. You know, maybe won't be able to eat. Maybe it's going to figure out how to get enough food. I don't know, you know. But what I do know is the heart's tender, the heart cares, and I'm going to really relax with it, knowing that I don't know how this is going to play out, right? And then see if you can have that relationship now with uh, the flavor of compassion and see how it isn't depleting you in any way. It's actually an enlivening. Compassion is an enlivening, liberating quality of the mind. It's not a depleting quality of the mind. So when compassion is depleting, we're, rel- we're relating with another emotion, not compassion. 
But that doesn't mean it's easy. We have to find it. We have to strengthen it. And, you know, you're obviously in a really challenging profession, so you want to do this background work like in kindergarten level to develop it, develop your confidence, so you can be more in that natural circulation on the job. Yeah. Because it isn't your compassion or love going to your patients. Right? That's the thing. If we think it's my love, my patience, my forgiveness, no, it's not. It's really not that way. But it seems that way. But we have to find that the love isn't personal. It's there. It's beautiful. It's healing on all kinds of levels for us and those around us. But it's not me doing it. So we have to tease out that idea. So that's why it's best to learn it in a simple way. Meditating, even from a distance, meditating and bringing some of your patients to mind. You know, where you're in the safety of your home, the comfort of your home. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Shannon. I have a question. Um, he has, Cornel West has this great quote that, um, that justice is the expression of love in public. And um, <coughs> so I'm just wondering, um, for me, a lot of justice issues have to do with some form of anger, like cycling through mm-hmm. that. And um, I just am wondering about in the Buddhist cosmology about like the uses of anger. Um, is it that anger is bad? I find, I'm mean, just be honest. It's my problem, but um, I find that anger it can be very useful sometimes too. Um, also as a create, as a, as a writer too. And um, not to hold on to it, not to cling to it, but you know, I just, as a human being, there's certain things that, that happen um, to especially vulnerable folks um, that are, are clearly wrong. Um, and so I feel like anger can be an expression of love if you don't cling to it. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I don't think so. But I just think we, we might need to refine our language a little bit because, you know, clearly love, and actually Cornell West is such a good example because, I mean, I don't know him personally, of course, and I'm, I'm assuming many of you do know, have seen him on TV and stuff. He's a well-known scholar, author, and activist. And I don't know if he actually has a, like, was he trained in a seminary besides his academic background? Uh, he's a philosopher. Yeah. So I don't but he often, he just radiates a lot of love. But he speaks very clearly, you know, not afraid to speak truth to power. And... Uh, you know, so he's a really good example of somebody who's uh, willing to be out there and speak the truth, but it always seems, from my point of view at least, that he's really coming from a place of love. And clearly there's, like you, the examples you mentioned, Shannon, clearly there's a place where love has to be really strong, really powerful, because it's got to cut through a lot of delusion, a lot of habits of not seeing things. And, uh, and there's a lot of defense, like not wanting to see things. So sometimes compassion and love has to be really forceful. And it might, and it often does, really hurt people. But that hurt may be just the right medicine for people, for the society at large. But the difference, and this is why I think we need a different word, because anger, by definition, is something that burns the person who's angry, okay. right? 
So if you're finding that you're getting burnt up in your activism or in your speaking the truth, in your taking care of people who need help being taken care of, then I would ask, well, can I do this? Can I affect the chain change that needs to happen without killing myself? Because what good does that do? And that's not good modeling either for everybody. So how to be somebody who's fearless, somebody who can speak the truth, who's not afraid to give difficult medicine to the world? How can we do that and come alive in the doing of that? That's really the question. And especially for activists. Some of you know Louis Alameo did a workshop yesterday. I was out of town. But he does it uh, a couple times a year for artists and activists. And Louis is a longtime activist in the community. And... Uh, so it's a good thing the, for activists to come together and figure out how to do it because there needs to be a kind of intensity and strength, but it can come from love. I mean, I, really, I don't think it's easy, but I think it can come from love. And the, and the really powerful cha- uh, changers, you know, uh, they, know, they figured out how to come from love most of the time. That's what allows them to do good work and to do it for a long time <laughs> without frying themselves. Anyway, it's 8.30, so we need to let go here. Just take a few seconds, let go of the words. We'll just experiment, see if we can rest in love for a few seconds. Just the natural goodness of the heart not afraid. May we carry this out into the world. Thanks everyone for coming tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.